The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. forward. There's going to be a very large leap. We're going to get through Noah, and then from there, um, literally the next time we get together, we're going to be talking about Abraham, and that's, when, that's where we're going to be at. So let's begin with prayer. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your word. You're the Lord, and we trust in you, God. We put our trust in you. We put all of ourselves, Lord, everything that we do into your capable hands, knowing that you are able, oh God, to do exceedingly abundantly above whatsoever we ask or think. And I ask you to bless thy word and everyone who hears it and listens and that you will touch their heart to hunger for more, Lord, for more of your word. And that the word go into their heart and grow, Lord. Your word will not return void, but it will do what you send it out to do. I believe that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, we have come to Genesis part 7, and uh, we left Noah in the ark, right? Or at least with the ark, amen, and that's where we're at now. I want to talk a little bit about the ark so we understand, because as a young boy I used to see in Sunday school, we would see, before I became an atheist, I was in Sunday school, I did a lot of study as a matter of fact, but I uh, really wanted to know about the Bible and the things of God, and then I became an atheist. It's a long story. I'll tell you about it sometime. But I remember in Sunday school, they would have pictures of Noah and the ark, and it was a little boat with these little animals on it. How many have seen these kinds of pictures? This little, kind of like a tugboat little thing, and got a bunch of animals out there, and, it, yeah, and you kind of get that image in your mind, and when you get that image in your mind, it's kind of hard to believe that such a thing could have been used to save all of humankind and animal kind. Uh, but the ark was not anything like that. And the building of the ark must have brought great ridicule from Noah's neighbors. Noah, think about it in a time before rain. Noah said there was coming a great flood. He begins to preach about it. And then he proceeds to build this mammoth boat. On dry land. It had not rained on the earth before. And where was this great float, uh, boat going to float? Uh, they could not believe what they could not see. So he spoke to these people. They did not believe him. They could not see it. And it made no dif difference that their creator had said it. If they would have believed God, then they would have believed what God said. Now let's look at the ark. The ark was... 450 feet long. It was 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. And that's figuring the cubit as 
18 inches. Some actually measure the cubit all the way up to 24 inches, so it could have been a, a quite a bit larger. And just to give you an idea of the size of it, it was not until 1858 when the Great Eastern was built that the Ark was, uh, was uh, replaced by a larger ship. The Ark was the largest ship ever to float before 1858. The Ark was not a, sh a ship in our idea of what a ship is, um, but it was rather a barge. So the word Ark in Hebrew is tabat, and it means box. God told Noah to build a box. And this well describes the ark because that's what it was. It was a container. And that container was for mankind and the animals. It was not designed to travel under power. There were no oars. There were no sails. But to simply float upright in very turbulent waters. Inside the ark... Noah was to build rooms, and these would be for Noah and his family as living quarters and thousands of compartments for the animals. We mentioned last week the ark had three decks, and it had a window of one cubit, so we're going to say around 18 inches in the top deck. And this window was to provide ventilation, and it ran the entire length of the ark. The ark would have been, this is for you note takers over here, the ark would have been 95,000 square feet of floor space and a total volume of 1,396,000 cubic feet. So to compare it to something that we understand, like of course we have a Navy chief here, she probably understands, but <laughs> comparing the ark size to freight cars, it was equal to 10 freight trains. Of 52 cars each. That's a lot of space. That's far from the tugboat uh, in the pictures that I saw as a child in Sunday school. A barge of this size could carry two of every known species in the world today in only about half its cargo capacity. That's amazing, right? It could, it, could, it could literally carry two of every species. And that's, you have to understand that a wolf and a coyote are the same species. They have subgenres, but all dogs are basically wolves, right? And we understand that. All, uh, we, we have uh, cats and lions. There might have been different, but we have domesticated cats. We have domesticated dogs. We've turned them into certain subgroups. But as far as the species, it would carry two of each species in, in species in half of its cargo capacity. And so now we have discussed the ark. I want to move on to Genesis chapter 7. Say, someone say hallelujah, because we're going to start moving through. Read, don't read with me, but read along with me. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Noah, come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens. So God wanted to take the clean animals by sevens. Why? Because they would end up becoming food after this. Man would be allowed to eat animals. And also for sacrifice. You can only sacrifice clean animals unto the Lord at that time. 
the male and his female, and a beast that are not clean by two, the male and his female, of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. I want you to learn something as you're reading the Bible. It's a very good practice to make. Whenever you see the word seven, in fact, it's, it, here's a good, for you note takers, take your notebook and start writing where that seven's at. Start writing about it, what he's talking about with these sevens, because we are going to get into the structure of the Bible when we get to a particular book. I don't want to get into it, into it uh, too deeply today. We have a lot to cover. But the Bible is a book of sevens. It has a heptatic structure, which means it's structured in sevens, which is how we know that it's the genuine article. And you will find uh, when, you, when you merge the Old Testament with the New Testament, there may only be three or four uh, items that would normally have seven. And then in the New Testament, we'll find out that there are uh, there are enough in the New Testament to make it seven. But the Bible is actually in the Hebrew, in the text, in the, in the English, it is divided up into seven. God loves the number seven. And we're actually going to get a little bit into the number seven today, just a little bit. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. There went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up. And the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was up on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. That is actually another number that you will see throughout the scriptures as well. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with him, them into the ark. That's eight people. They and every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, and every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Noah preached. People did not listen, and the Lord shut the door. There is a time coming soon when God is going to shut the door of salvation. There will come a day when the last person to join his church 
joins. There's going to be one last person. Could be somebody who's actually hearing my voice online today. They may be the last person in God's church. God will shut the door. Noah did not shut the door. God did. And when Noah heard the weeping and wailing outside, when the rain began to fall, Noah could not open the door. Now it's interesting here that God shut Noah and his family into the ark seven days before he sent the flood. After the seventh day, which would have been the eighth day, God sent the flood. There were eight people on the ark, and the floods came on the eighth day. I believe that God is trying to tell us something here. And this is yet another pattern in Scripture. I believe it points to the very end of this world, this known universe, actually, that we are living in right now. Uh, when God will again purge the earth, this time with fire... And not with water. And I, will be, I believe he will do this for those who are, who are following along. He's going to do this after the seventh day. He will do it on the eighth day. After the 7,000th year of man. So eight in the Bible seems to be a number that correlates with new beginnings. And I will be pointing these out, of course, as we go along in the scriptures. But there's a lot of them, and that's also a number that you want to pay attention to. Genesis chapter 7 and verse 17. Let's continue. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark. And it was lifted up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark went up on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth and all the hills that were under the whole heaven were covered 15 cubits that's 22.5 feet with our average cubit upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered they found a whale fossil on top of a mountain right here in california they found another whale fossil in vermont where there is no ocean how did a whale get buried in order to be made a fossil in Vermont? It's an interesting thing. They found whales in some of the highest mountains. They found all kinds of sea life, fossils of sea life on the highest mountains in the world. So above the highest mountain, 22.5 feet. Upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered, and all flesh died that moved up on the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died, and every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven and they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark, and waters prevailed upon the earth an hundred and fifty days. Now, I can't figure it out, but there are people who argue, and these are people who call themselves Christians, and even scholars, and even people in seminaries who should know better, right? 
They contend that the flood was not worldwide, but only a local flood. It only happened in that particular land. Now, what I read, does that sound like a local flood? So we're going to look at that. We're going to address what the Bible teaches. And if God was really trying to describe a local flood, he surely could have written it a little more clearly. Over and over again, the wording demands a global flood. Look at these quotes, and these are just some of many. The Bible says, the face of the earth, Genesis 6.1. The end of all flesh, the earth is filled with violence. I will destroy them with the earth, Genesis 6.13. Destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die, Genesis 6.17. If God had intended to describe a global world-destroying flood, he could not have said it any more clearly. And furthermore, we can continue throughout the Bible. God promised never to send another flood like Noah's flood. Uh, Genesis 9, verse 11 and verse 15. But there have been many local floods, even regional floods since Noah's time. So if Noah's flood was only a local flood, then God lied to us. He did, in fact, send another flood like Noah's. Likewise, there was no need for Noah to build an ark for his survival. Noah had up to 120 years warning. All he would have had to do was walk away from the area and find a place where the flood was not going to happen. But that was not possible. And that's why everyone on the earth died. A local flood implies a partial judgment. And Peter based his prophecy uh, that uh, the existing planet will melt with fervent heat in 2 Peter 3.10. And he based that on the entire earth being covered in a delusion, being destroyed in the flood. Let me just say this. There are few doctrines that are taught as clearly in Scripture as that of a global, worldwide flood. Now, let's look at the flood and the fossil record. The flood would have laid down layers of mud full of dead things. We were all taught, I believe, how many actually went to a, a public school where they took your money and taught you religion? That's what they did. They don't allow the Bible to be taught in, in, in their schools. But they taught you a religion called evolution. That is an evolution. Evolution is a religion. It is absolutely a religion. Anyone who actually looks carefully at science would never conclude that we evolved. And I'm telling you that as a former evolutionist. It is not possible, and it is their religion. And they use the fossil record. They use the different strata that's in the earth today. The flood would have laid down layers of mud full of dead things, now rocks and fossils, covering immense area, areas having been deposited under catastrophic conditions. So a proper interpretation of these fossils that we find Speak of a global, dynamic, watery catastrophe. That's how it happened. That's the only way it could have happened. 
and that is the great flood. I mean, you think about what a fossil is. A fossil occurs when a plant or an animal is crushed suddenly, not lying down and dying, not being killed by another animal, but being crushed suddenly between layers of heavy, moist earth. And there are fossils of very large animals. And the existence of these fossils do not prove evolution. They point to a great catastrophe. They point to the flood. And the story of the flood is told in the history of nearly every civilization on earth. They all have a flood story, whether they knew each other or not. I sent a link to uh, many of you, and I will also post it on the YouTube channel. It's an interesting study that shows how Chinese words tell the story of Genesis in picture form. And I, I urge you to read it. For instance, the word for ship in Chinese is a picture. Their characters are pictures, unlike our language, which we recognize as making a particular sound. And we sound out the alphabet phonetically. They actually look at the picture, and that picture represents a word. And this is just one instance because I don't have time to get into it. But the word for large ship, which we're studying right now, we're, we're studying a large ship, right? In Chinese, is the picture of a boat, which makes sense. I mean, if you're saying the word ship, it does look like a boat. The strange thing is this large ship, and you have to understand that this language is 5,000 years old. It's older than Buddhism. It's older than Taoism. It's older than Christianity. It's older than the book of Genesis, the writing of the book of Genesis. And yet, it's a boat with eight people on the boat. It's a large ship. And when you look into some of these words, it's not just one. It's many, many, many words that are obviously detailing the Garden of Eden, the deception of Eve by the serpent, the traveling of the Asian people from the Tower of Babel to where they ended up living. This is all in their uh, alphabet. It's really worth taking a look at. And what does it tell us? It tells us. That early man, 5,000 years ago, knew this story that we're reading today. It was common knowledge 5,000 years ago. Amen. So, Noah's Ark is a symbol of salvation. I want to talk a little bit about that. And once again, we reach a point in the Bible where a pattern begins. Here's another pattern. The earth was sinful. And God decided to cleanse it from sin. How does he accomplish it? Well, he baptized it. That's what he did. He baptized the earth in water. Look at what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Peter reads, or wrote, Which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus 
Christ. So Peter, when he looked at the flood, he saw it as a baptism. And he saw it as a type, a similitude, if you will, of our present day baptism. So the earth was baptized. But God is not finished. The earth was baptized with water. And there is another baptism coming. 1 Peter 3, 3, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So we see God's way of cleansing the earth. Because we remember the earth itself is under the curse. That's why we have weeds and all these other, other uh, plant life growing. That's why the animal kingdom is the way it is. You know, the predators, etc. The entire world, the entire earth is under the curse. So God's way of cleansing the earth is by a baptism in water and a baptism in fire. Fire in the Bible is a type of the spirit of God. Jesus said we must be born again of water and spirit, John chapter 3. So we see that type, and you will continue to see types like that all throughout the Bible because I'm going to be pointing them out to you, especially when we get to Exodus. Now let's return to brother Noah and his family on the ark. They remained on the ark for about 370 days. The ark rested on Mount Ararat. But they had to wait until the waters were off the earth completely. Now, people have gone up and uh, on the modern-day Mount Ararat, at least the one that's named Mount Ararat, and they've looked for the ark. There's some interesting art articles, interesting videos on it. Whether they found it or not, I don't know. But I think the problem is um, where Ararat is at. Um, any, any mountain could be called Ararat. But there are some people who have actually claimed to have found the ark. It's interesting. You can look it up. I'm not going to say either way whether I believe they did or not. Um, it doesn't matter. The Lord said there was an ark. There was an ark. Um, and it, and uh, they had to wait inside the ark until the waters were off the earth completely. And Noah sent out a raven and a dove. And if you're reading the assigned chapters, you already read that. And so I'm going to move on. It is time to start moving on in the scripture. And I feel the need to get poor brother Noah back on dry ground. So we're now going to jump down to chapter 8 and verse 15. Genesis 8, 15. And God spoke unto Noah saying, go forth from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring forth with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every fowl and whatsoever creeps upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. And now we come to God's covenant with Noah here in verse 20. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet odor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. That word smelled a sweet odor. We will find that all throughout 
the book of Leviticus, when it talks about bringing the offerings to the Lord, that an offering done right was a sweet aroma unto the Lord. So that's a, 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 a phrase that we're going to become very accustomed with. He smelled a sweet soul, uh, and he said, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So even though you're evil from your youth, and I'm evil from my youth, and I certainly am, uh, I was born into sin, I was shaped in iniquity, he still says he will not destroy man from the earth, neither Will I again smite any more everything living as I have done while the earth remains seed time and a harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Uh, chapter 9 and verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them. I know there's a lot of reading here, but we're going to get to something very quickly. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and the fear of you and the dread of you. Shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moves upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Even as the green plants have I given you all things. But flesh with its life, which is its blood, you shall not eat. By the way, Christians, we don't eat the blood now. According to the book of Acts, it's one of the things that we're held to under the law is we don't eat the blood that's in the animal. So no blood pudding for all you English people. We don't do that. Okay. The life is in the blood. That's what the Bible says. And it's thought and I agree that until this time, mankind was a vegetarian. And uh, God at this time gave animals to mankind as food. So he now authorized the use of animals as what the Bible says, meat. And meat in the Bible is simply food. It could be vegetable, it could be fruit, um, and of course it can be meat. Uh, the only stipulation was not to eat the blood of the animal. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of... Man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. So here God instituted the death penalty. God did. And by it, he made men judges over other men. So this here is an establishment of law and government. Where men would be able to say this particular person is worthy of death and to put that person to death. I'm not going to get into it now, but that has a very important meaning um, when it comes to Jesus Christ. And we're going to find that later on. And uh, verse 7. And you be uh, you fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. And now we have this covenant, this Sign of the covenant in verse 8. And God spoke unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you 
Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the token of the covenant, which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow. It's the rainbow. I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you. And he goes on to say that when he sees the rainbow, he will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. Could you imagine, and I'm going to be very, very gentle here, but could you imagine walking down the street with a whole bunch of people declaring that you're a sinner and that you're proud of it and wrapping yourself in a rainbow? Could you imagine what God is thinking? When God sees the rainbow, he remembers the covenant that he had. He thinks of the past judgment of earth by water and the earth will be judged next by fire as peter tells us and uh, it never rained before the flood so the sight of the rainbow in the sky was a new sight now why the rainbow and i want to get into this and the reason i want to get into this is i remember very clearly and whenever i read this verse the old memories come back to me it was actually one of my arguments that i had when I was an atheist, uh, that God did not exist. I viewed the entire Bible, the word of God, as a book of fables. I equated it to mythology. It's certainly not breathed by God. It was made up by man. That's what I, I argued. That's what I believed. And it was this particular scripture that I thought about and that I would talk about. For surely we all know that rainbows... Are nothing but, and I like to get scientific here because I like to, to be an intellectual and let everybody know how intelligent I was. And go ahead and argue with me. I know everything. I, I, I know science, not religion. Science was my religion. Because no matter what evidence anybody showed me, I chose to believe in it. When science says that science has all the answers, you now have a religion. Science is supposed to be about always looking for more truth, isn't it? But any scientist right now, any one of them, I don't care who they are. They could be atheists. They could be agnostics. It makes no difference. If they right now, and, and these are tenured people. These are people who actually have grants from the government who are well known in their community. And you can find this on YouTube. There's an entire documentary about it. I just can't remember the name of it. But if you say the words, I think we should at least look at whether God created the heavens and the earth. From a scientific viewpoint, you will be blacklisted from the scientific community instantly. You are not allowed to see if whether these things are true or not. Does that sound like science to you? No. It's a religion. And you better not go against the holy grail. You better not go against our, our, our religious foundation. Our God Darwin. But let me tell you, evolution is... False. It's been proven false with science. They're just not yet willing to admit it. Um, and one has to understand 
that I did not come to know God through science and intellect, but he came to me in a very miraculous, undeniable fashion. But I would argue we know that rainbows are the result of the refraction and reflection of light. Sounds good. But in short, a rainbow is a multicolored arc made by light striking water droplets. And the idea that God put it there appeared to me as fiction, that early, less intelligent, less technologically advanced civilizations probably taught their children. And I saw it as really a joke. I did not believe it at all. And um, when I found out that God was very real, I still had all this science in my mind because God didn't save me by teaching me intellectually that he was real. He didn't win the argument with me. He didn't have some great debater come in and debate with me and, oh, oh wow, you're right, maybe... Maybe God is real. That never happened. God revealed himself to me. But I still had all of this in my mind, the stuff that I had been taught, the stuff that I had believed. And I used to argue. I was in advanced debate. I would, any chance I got to argue against the existence of God, I did it. I loved to do it. And yet, now I knew that God was real. And there has to be some truth to this, right? So I look back at the rainbow. And uh, I want to say this, we can never explain God. We're never going to fully explain him. We're not going to know all about him. He's unreachable as far as all knowledge. We'll never have the full knowledge of God. He's without limit. But though we can explain him, he's provided us with similitudes, as we talked about, and types and shadows that reveal himself. One of these is light. Amen. We, we went through that, didn't we? Genesis chapter 1. The first thing that God commanded in Genesis chapter 1 is let there be light. And we remember that the sun was created on what day? The fourth day, of course. Yeah, of course, that's what she said. And was not the light that God made appear when he said let there be light. It was not sunlight. And we discussed that this light that he, he spoke uh, into being here in Genesis chapter 1, he's speaking of the life which was the light of the world or the light of God himself. And then we look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. And you know, I love John because he, he goes all the way back to Genesis. He just likes to go all the way to the beginning. And he likes to talk about the nature of God. He likes to talk about the nature of Jesus as the Christ. He likes to talk about all of these things. And so we can learn so much from him. And he said in 1 John 1 and verse 5, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Now he's not the sunlight. We don't worship the sun. We worship the God who is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He was the life, and the life was the light of men, and he's the light of the world. But when he made the sun, he produced natural light, and it was a similitude. That's why he did it, and light is regularly refracted into three primary colors. We learned this in school, didn't we? You can take light. White light. 
and you can refract it through a prism into three primary colors, blue, yellow, and red. And then if you take that same light in the, and, you, you, uh, uh, and you begin to manipulate that light with more refraction, more reflection, the light appears in seven colors, the colors of the rainbow. Those colors are violet, indigo, blue, green, yellow, orange, and red. So within the light, there are three primary colors and the sevenfold diversity of the rainbow. Now, throughout the scripture, seven is the number associated with God. Revelations chapter 4 and verse 5 speaks of the seven spirits of God. It reads, and out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, does God have seven spirits? I thought that God was a spirit and that he was one and only one spirit. So obviously God does not have seven spirits, right? So it's talking about something here. Uh, but we see that the seven spirits of God are observed multiple times in various fashion throughout the book of Revelation. We need to understand that God is a spirit and he is one. He's one. Now the word for seven in the Bible represents completeness. And the seven spirits represent the wholeness or the completeness of of God in his attributes. In Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 2. Isaiah wrote. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the branch. He is the rod. He is the stem. And let me tell you, whenever you see those words in the Bible, start paying attention. Whenever you see those words in the prophecy, start looking for a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. Those aren't the only words, but whenever you see these, look for them. He's there. And this is speaking of him who would be born of the lineage of King David, who was the son of Jesse. He said, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So here we have seven things listed. Number one is the spirit of the Lord. Number two is the spirit of wisdom. Number three is the spirit of understanding. Number four is the spirit of of counsel. Number five is the spirit of power. And number six is the spirit of knowledge. Number seven is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. We won't get into this again, but I do want to mention when you see someone in the Old Testament before Acts chapter, chapter two, and the Bible says they were filled with the spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit. It is talking about one of these attributes that God gave them. It was the spirit of knowledge or a spirit of wisdom. 
but it simply says Holy Spirit. They were not filled with the Holy Spirit like we are today. But notice how all of these attributes come out of the first attribute, which is the Spirit of the Lord. Just as the colors of the rainbow come out of a singular light. That doesn't mean that there are three gods who have seven spirits. There is one God. It means that there is one God with three manifestations, and these are the fullness of his qualities. Now, I'm going to give you an example. If we were to shut off all the lights in this sanctuary, and we were to remove all other sources of light so that we were in pitch blackness, and I were to shine a light in that pitch blackness, there would only be one light, just as there would only be one God. If I were then to refract that light through a prism, we would see the three primary colors. There's still one light. And then if I were to further manipulate that light using refraction and reflection, the three primary colors would become a total of seven colors. There's still only one light. And God is one. And this is what the scripture says about that God. All the fullness of the Godhead. What's the Godhead? It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwells in Jesus Christ. I know we've seen, and I've seen them myself, diagrams of God. And there is a young man who looks a little bit like Jesus standing next to an old man with a beard and graying hair. And then behind him is some kind of dove. That's not the way it is. Because they would have a hard time sitting on the one throne. There's one throne and there's one that sits upon the throne. And the Bible says... Colossians 2, 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Not next to him, in him. And according to Isaiah 11, 1 through 2, the sevenfold spirit of the Lord would rest upon him. So when you see God, you see Jesus. He's the only one you're ever going to see. And he is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. That word firstborn does not necessarily mean being born. It is a rank throughout the entire Old Testament. In fact, you could lose that rank. Um, Esau lost the rank of firstborn, and, and, and Jacob got it. Same thing with Ishmael. Ishmael lost the rank of firstborn. And Isaac got it. The same thing with uh, uh, Reuben. Reuben lost his rank of firstborn. You see, and that's, that's a rank. So he is the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And I want to end this rainbow discussion by showing you the scripture in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 28. 
the appearance appearance of the brilliant light all around him was like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. So now this former atheist who used to look at a rainbow and think there was no God. Now I look at the rainbow and I think of the beauty and the wonderful attributes of the God who created it. Amen. God is light. So let us continue with the story of Noah. It is a new earth Noah and his family are facing with the new earth are new rules. Uh, used to be you only, the only rule was you could not eat the fruit. Now we had to have a system of laws, a system of government, and man remained a sinner. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark, verse 18, were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth peopled, and Noah began to till the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, this righteous man, and was drunk. And he was uncovered within his tent. We're going to stop there. And we will continue with Noah. And I am going to drag you all the way to Abraham. I promise you next week we will start in with Abraham. So let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being here, Lord. I want to to, uh, teach your word. And I want people to be ready to hear your word. Lord, I want you to be here In the spirit, God, whenever we get together, Lord, the Bible says that wherever two or more are gathered together in your name, Lord Jesus, you are there in the midst of them. And we have gathered together in your name. I pray for the prayer service after this, Lord, that you will be here as you were with us yesterday, Lord. We long for your presence, which is the most important thing, Lord, your presence and being at your feet. Oh, Lord, is the best and only necessary thing. We love you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Praise God. And the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of Soul and spirit of joints and marrow Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart I-